Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Let's go. Ready? From the top. My favorite shows on TV have 12 minutes of advertising. I can't get behind that kind of time. Eat quickly, drive faster, make more money now. I can't get behind that. My kids say, he said to me, and I'm like, and he's like, and she's like, it's all, he's all, she's all. I can't get behind that kind of like English. That'll be six to eight weeks before delivery. The rising oceans, the warming temperatures. The dying polar bears, no tigers in 50 years. Rising poison in the air and water. I can't understand why the price of gas suddenly rises when oil goes up. But takes months to go down long after oil falls. I can't get behind any of that. I can't get behind the gods who are more vengeful, angry, and dangerous if you don't believe in them. Why can't all these gods just get along? I mean, they're omnipotent and omnipresent. All right, so I think that song, which we play every single time that we are doing a show, which is All Calls, No Guests, uh, a show in which you are invited to call 888-720-WNPR, otherwise known as 888-720-9677, and either ask or tell me anything that might be on your mind, within reason, or perhaps beyond the bounds of reason. Anyway, I think that song is especially apt today because, well, I have to back up and say, first of all, that you know, for about 25 years, part of my job here in the state of Connecticut has been as a political commentator. And, and perhaps I flatter myself, but I, I would have said for most of those 25 years, I was one of the better known political commentators in Connecticut. Um, and, you know, I mean, over the last year or so, I've completely lost my appetite for it. And I, I really feel like I probably know less about politics than the average well-informed kind of person. And, and, and I'm less persuaded that some kind of political reckoning is how we get out of where we are right now. Um, so I, I have to sort of bracket everything I, I say with that, that I used to, I don't know. I don't even understand really what happened to me, but it was it was it was like how with COVID you lose your sense of smell, your sense of taste. I just woke up one morning. I thought I really don't care about this stuff, and I'm not interested in knowing more about it than most people because that's what you have to do. Well, ideally, that's what you have to do if you're going to be a political commentator is know more about this than most people. And I don't even want to do that. So like, how could I be a political commentator anyway? So, I mean, and I'm saying that by way of warning you that I don't necessarily have any kind of brilliant insights about what happened in the, in the midterm elections or the, the off-year elections on Tuesday. And I'm not convinced that there really is quite as much of a there there as some people would want you to believe. However, I do have a couple of theories that are sort of inherently not political. And I think the first one is I just think the country's really grumpy right now. I think as a society, 
we're really, really grumpy. You know, we've been through two pretty harrowing years, not just the pandemic, but obviously the unrest triggered by George Floyd and the other related incidents that created the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, there's, I think, some weird stuff going on in, on the schools right now where people are less and less comfortable uh, with seating authority uh, over their kids to elected members of the Board of Education or people who spent their whole lives planning to be teachers training to be teachers, uh, I, I think that there is an anger um, that's out there right now. And, and it's, I don't think it has necessarily a specific political flavor, except that the Republican Party has kind of positioned itself, you know, as the bucket into which anger can flow. I mean, they've, been, they've done a better job of saying, you hate everything that's going on in this country right now. So do we. <laughs> so come join us. Come, you know, I mean, the Republican Party continues for the most part not to put out proposals, you know, not, not to put out proposals for any kind of constructive advancement of our society. They tend mostly to put out the put forth the idea that they object to all the things that they think you probably object to as well. And and some things are kind of disguised a little bit. For example, like Kevin McCarthy is talking about right now a parents' bill of rights uh, for for parents of school aged children. Uh, you know, to me that is it, may, it might sound like the creation of something, but to me, I think it's just another vehicle for discontent. For some reason or other, I didn't really put the pop screen on when I walked in here today. All right. Uh, I think the, your auditory experience will now get considerably better. Anyway, our number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. You can call in about anything that you want. Now, how did we get so crabby? I mean, and I do actually think that, look, you can do all kinds of demographic analysis of what happened on Tuesday. By the way, we don't have to talk about politics at all either. But And later, later just because I, I need... I need to talk to someone, and I'm not seeing my therapist until tomorrow. I probably will have to talk about the Aaron Rodgers situation, which I think reaches far, far beyond the confines of football. But um, and in fact, reaches out so far that it touches the thing that I'm talking about right now. But but there is this sort of rejection, rejection of. I mean, well, let me back up and also say, and Jennifer Rubin has a terrific column in the Washington Post about this today. You know, I mean. This crabbiness is also reflected in, for example, Joe Biden's really low poll numbers. You know, by by most measures, he's actually had an incredibly productive early presidency. I mean, he's really got a lot of stuff accomplished. This this would particularly if he gets these you know these two big bills passed. I mean, that's going to be uh, that is going to be an epic two years in the history of any presidency. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, he really has hit an awful lot of the marks that he set for himself. There's, so there's something else going on. Um, and, and some of it is, I think, this very sort of unfocused anger. Well, if you don't know where to focus it, you focus it on the president because, like, who else is there to get mad at? Um, I think there are other things going on as well that feed into that. But but you can sort of start there. I mean, the other part of this, I think, is that it is possible that both the press and the Democratic Party have failed to communicate effectively about what are thrown into, for want of a better term, the category of 
kitchen table issues. People want to know, what are you doing to help me right now? Because I feel like I need help. I feel, feel like my life sucks. That's why I'm so crabby. What are you doing to help me right now? And, you know, I mean, arguably, the Democrats could say a lot about that. They could say a lot about what they're doing to make your life better and what, how they would do even more if certain idiots would get out of their way. But I don't know that they've sent that message as effectively as they could have. And, I, you know, I really do still – maybe I'm being unfair to the Republican Party. But I, I feel that mostly all that they have done is try to obstruct things. Uh, but that's a very popular thing to do if, in fact, the prevailing mood is crabbiness. All right. So the number, 888-720-WNPR, doesn't have to be about that. Other things to talk about, 888-720-9677. Oh, before we go to Jerry, I also have to tell you that I have today with me, in case things get boring, I have an envelope from Mr. Carp. Mr. Carp is somebody I went to college with. He was the smartest person I went to college with. He's way smarter than me. And what he does now, he's been very, very, very successful. Like, you know, very successful uh, in his life, in his career. And now what he does here in some form of semi-retirement is <laughs> he clips out things from magazines and newspapers, like old-fashioned, old-style, um, uh, OG-style. And he puts them in repurposed envelopes. This is gentleman has done extremely well, extremely well in terms of success and particularly financial success. But he takes – this is in an – I have the, this particular set of clippings and I have not opened this sealed envelope. It is in a uh, – somebody said sent well, – with AARP had sent him I think probably a, one of these pitches. That you, when you get older – this is happening to me too – like 75 percent of your mail – is various companies trying to get you to take their particular kind of supplemental Medicare. Uh, I mean, like my mail is just, just dominated by that. Um, so he's got one of these things from AARP, Supplemental and Personal Health Plans. Open immediately, action required. Apparently he did open it. <laughs> and then he put a lot of clips into it. Uh, and he sealed it. And I have it here. And I don't know what's in here. But if I ran out of things to talk about or if we ran out of things to talk about, I would be able to open this up and see what's in there. It's often very eclectic. Um, I'm also very impressed because I just want to say one or two more things <laughs> about the envelope here. This battered envelope. Uh, it's got an Arnold Palmer stamp. I didn't realize there were Arnold Palmer stamps. And then, because there's quite a few clips in here and because Mr. Carp is cognizant of the fact that he often exceeds the basic you know, first-class limit, he has these extra um, ounces. It must be an extra ounce stamp. But they're these really cute little bunnies. I've never seen these stamps before. And, and I have no real occasion to use them. But they're, they're like the cutest stamps. I mean, they're like real – somebody's done a painting of them. It's, it's like the, the wife of the sheriff in Fargo, the wife of Marge, uh, the Francis McDormand character in Fargo. Not the wife, the husband. The husband, he really remember – if you remember this movie, he paints uh, nature paintings that are, are – that he attempts to have – become stamps. I mean, the U.S. Postal Service buys a certain amount of art, you know, on an annual basis. And so uh, some some nature artist has painted a very beautiful picture of a wild rabbit. Okay. That's all. That's all. Never mind. I don't even know why I brought that up. Uh, all right. So I am going to go to, I'm going to begin with Mary from Hampton. We also have Jerry from Simsbury. We have Tom from Mystic. Let's see what people are saying out there in the in the great beyond, in the world at large. Um, all right, uh, Mary, you get to start things off. 
Hi, Colin. How are you today? Oh, as well as can be expected. How are you? Oh, I'm getting by, as they say. Mm. Listen, I have a couple of thoughts. One, anger is definitely out there. I'm not quite sure why people are so angry, but I'm wondering if there isn't also an element of being disillusioned. I mean, COVID really brought to the surface so many things. I mean, we really couldn't hide all the things, so many things that are kind of wrong in society. And um, people maybe are just feeling like they're led, their government, their country has somehow let them down on some level. And they don't, we really don't know how to fix it. It's just so deep. When, when you think about what those things are, what do you think about? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, I guess, is just the way the healthcare system wasn't really prepared to handle COVID. And I think we all thought we were probably better off in Costa Rica, a country that <laughs> seems to have a, a, health, a public health care system that is working for its citizens. And then there's this whole notion of just the horrible, wanton killing of, of black people, especially black men. Um, it's been going on for a long time. It takes different guises at different times. Sometimes it's lynching. Sometimes it's throwing everybody in in jail because of some minor infraction, but this all this very overt um, attack, open, um, not even not even being ashamed. I mean, take Ahmad Arbery for example. I mean, the story that was put out about how he was killed. Mm-hmm. You know, what a horrible, tragic thing for his parents to live with, thinking that he'd been he'd been in the wrong, that he'd done something horrible, and then it was only by a serendipitous kind of moment that we find out how he actually died and the story behind that. So those kinds of things have been going on in this country. And, and now all of a sudden it's kind of out there in the open and who do we trust? We can't trust our government. We can't trust uh, our, our lawmakers. Um, we, we are not held by the same standards as a Donald Trump or a Rudy Giuliani or any of those nitwits. So um, I think people are just angry, but they're also very disillusioned about what we supposedly stand for in this country. And there's so many examples of it. Those are, you know, those are just a couple of. All right. So, that, well, we, yeah, we, thank, thanks for that call. I, I just want to make sure other people get on. I, I will say this. I don't know. I, I feel like everything that I have to say is so amorphous and unfocused that I'm not sure I would actually listen to this show if I weren't hosting it, but this is the best that I can do right now. Um, I, I, don't, I think ultimately we have problems with our values. Um, uh, we have fewer commonly agreed upon values than I think we need. Now, one of the things that, one of the things that I'm constantly battling with on this show is recency bias. There's a sense what I call it the narcissism of the present moment. There's a sense, and if you listen to Mary, you can hear it, that, that things are unusually bad. You know, things, things are, have degraded in, in a spectacularly different way. And, and I'm not arguing with that. I mean, you know, January 6th was unlike anything any of us have, has ever seen. But, you know, if you sort of look at the, I don't know, I've been alive longer than maybe a lot of people uh, living through the 60s and 70s. Things were really bad then. Um, 
and, and there was in many ways not a lot of trust then. And even you know, in, instituting basic kinds uh, of safe governmental safety net things that we take for granted now, like Medicare. Uh, was a hard sell uh, in the past. So trust has been a problem in the past. Um, information sources, I think, are a bigger problem right now than they've ever been before. I mean, one of the things that I tell myself every day is we're not going to fix our politics with politics. We're not going to fix our politics politically. If we're going to fix our politics, it really has to come at a deeper level of core values. And, and also, I think we have to fix our information system. I mean, the, this whole thing where people now really subscribe to completely different fact sets. Uh, I, I mean, I, I obviously, it's something that we're all struggling with and trying to figure out, well, what do you do about that? How do you even talk to a person who rejects the, the basic kinds of, uh, of factual authority that you've used in the past to verify information. How, how do we even have that conversation? Uh, but I, I don't want to give up. But I think those are the kinds of things that have to be fixed. I'm not sure that we fix our politics with better politics. I don't see how that works. All right. A lot of calls. A lot of people want to talk here, uh, and I am eager to do so. Let's go to Jerry in Simsbury. Hi, Jerry. You're on the air. Oh, Colin, you've done it again, my friend. You have been able to bring up three different uh, topics in the span of 30 seconds <laughs> and almost divert me entirely from my major ideas. First off, just want to say real quickly, the robocall, you were talking about Medicare stuff by mail. Mm -hmm. I get so many calls every day, and I'm not even eligible for Medicare yet. And it's always some nice person. Oh, hello. Yes, this is this is Dave. Uh, I'm calling from Medicare assistance. Can I? And it's like, that's one. Mm -hmm. um, the, the general thing I was starting to call about was just, you know, why does this all happen? And I, I was a teacher for over 30 years. And one of the toughest things that it is to get any group to go forward and learn anything or, or feel good themselves is that they have to feel secure. Every person has to feel secure. It is so much easier to raise insecurity and fear in people than it is to present some very rosy sort of picture that says we're going to move towards this better world and create a better society for everyone. You elicit fear in any sort of situation, and I, and I think that's also reinforced by our, not only the regular media but the, but the recreational media. Every single sort of movie is, you know, attacks, secret plots you know, conspiracies, you know, there's somebody back there doing something. And our media takes this on and creates a situation of continual cognitive dissonance, where we're always having upset ideas in our minds that, that we only have a little bit of information about, and so it makes us unsure about what the rest of the information is. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, caller. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add to that. I mean, I think we're kind of on the same page here. Uh, I, I do feel as though, yeah, I mean, uh, this came up the last time we did, did an all-call show. To me, I don't know, I, I, I struggle with this all the time, but to me, the big shift in news, in journalism of the 21st century is, in fact, the degree to which it's measurable, measurable in the form of clicks uh, and, and other kinds of metrics to a degree that it was not formally measurable. And this particularly affects what, what, what used to be the print media. So now what used to be the print media is 
just as easily summed up by by the Washington Post and the New York Times online as it is by something like Vox or Slate. So, um, but but in all in all of those instances, they know exactly what people click on. Uh, and in many cases, they know exactly how long they read the thing that they're clicking on. And for those of us who've shifted into the world of newsletters, uh, they know what their open rate is. That you know, all this stuff is like super measurable. And so, rather than telling people, and rather than giving somebody the the information equivalent of a multivitamin, like here are all the things that we think you basically need to know as a minimum daily requirement of being informed irrespective of whether we think you want to know about it or not. And that very much was the way journalism functioned, by and large, um, for decades and decades. Uh, And obviously, as television came along and began to play a dominant role, television's better at measuring things than, say, print mediums are. But now everything's measured. Everything's measured right down uh, to the finest granular details. And so it creates a media which, no matter what its stated higher purpose might be, and I think there are some some players still in the media ecosystem who you know manage to rise above this phenomenon. But the temptation to give people what they want when you really know what they want uh, is is a problem uh, because not everything that people need to know is stuff that they want to know. Um, and and in many respects, we have begun to treat our journalism audience like children. You know, the, the, here's you know here's what you want. Okay, we'll give we'll we'll give it to you because we know you'll have a tantrum if you don't get it. Um, and that I think does maybe play into what Jerry's talking about, which you know people wind up first of all, settling for media that will do that for them. Now, obviously, somebody is, who's very happy watching Fox News is going to be probably probably less happy reading the New York Times every day. Um, but but I think we've infantilized our audience, we, and, and, and maybe there was no way of avoiding it, but we've, we've infantilized our audience to the point of saying we know – that you can't stand, you can't stand to hear anything that clashes clashes with your own version of reality and your own very specific value set. So, believe me, we're not in the business of upsetting you in that particular way. And and right away, this whole process of informing and being informed begins to degrade very badly. Okay, so we've got on hold John from Avon, Tom from Mystic, Billy from Middletown. Hopefully, we will uh, also get some more women callers like Mary at the beginning. The number, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Christian, right-wing Republican, straight white American male. Gay bashing, black fearing, poor fighting, tree killing, regional leaders of sales. Frat housing, cake tapping, shirt tucking, back slapping, haters of hippies like me. Tree hugging, peace loving, pot smoking, porn watching, lazy ass hippies like me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body, oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. Wearing a raincoat is flying around in a plane made of a raincoat. But when you think of that, you hurt your mind and you'll need a friend to talk you down. Needing a friend to talk you down is food that comes from a pie. But when you hate the food that comes from a pie. Oh, I could listen to that song all day. And it also is very upsetting to John Denkowski, who does not like that song. Um, and I know that without ever having to discuss that song with John Denkowski. Um, anyway, uh, we're doing open open phones here today. All calls, no guests. Ask or tell me anything, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888 and let's just go right down the line here. We'll start with Lee in Farmington. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, hello. I'm calling um, really in response to Mary, I think, who said that um, maybe it, the problems are so deep that we need a, a, a really deep change, like going back to a monarchy or something. Um, I'm calling mainly about grammar. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been I've been teaching my seven-year-old granddaughter to say that somebody knows it way better than I because that means better than I do. Mm-hmm. The do is understood. So when you say somebody is way better at it than me, my poor seven-year-old granddaughter is going to hear that and going to be confused. Did I say that? Yes. Oh, okay. But that's all right. Apologies. <laughs> one of many. And, and so what, what's happening? I mean, we have McDonald's now saying it's more perfecter. Mm-hmm. Whatever they're selling, whatever kind of hamburger now is more perfecter. Now, maybe they're making an aside toward the more perfect union and the Declaration of Independence. I don't know where they're coming from. I do know where they're coming from. There are waves of grammatical errors being forced upon us by the media that it's, it makes a person disturbed. Um, well, you, but you can't. If you're going to look at advertising, advertising has always uh, done that. Uh, and sometimes they do it to get a laugh. I think that's probably what McDonald's is doing. Uh, but I don't know. I grew up hearing Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. Uh, and that used to upset people because it should, they would say it would be as. I mean, in, in addition to the fact you shouldn't be smoking anyway. But there, the, you know, there's always been, uh, because in fact, people who create. Uh, who create television and radio advertising, they try to reach as many people as possible. And they think, anyway, that one way to reach people is to speak the way that they think that those people speak. And that sometimes is not, yes. sometimes is not yes. the more perfecter I, form of grammar. I think that, I think that you, ha- you have a point there, that they are trying to reach the, the people who they think are 
speaking this way, that, that people who are uneducated, the word educated has become unpopular. So we'll reach the uneducated by using grammatical errors. But I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's a joke that they're trying. For instance, now it has become standard to hear people saying between Mr. Trump and I, when it should be between Mr. Trump and me. And, and and as far now that I've brought up Mr. Trump, I don't think that it's funny to keep calling people who have been our president, no matter which party, nitwits and dummies and all of these really um, disrespectful terms that are used for our former presidents. And I would like to say one word in favor of Mr. Trump, and that is of our last three presidents. Are they Bush? <laughs> I don't pay much attention anymore. Bush, Obama and Trump. He is the only one who spoke a decent English with, 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 with a standard English. I think the only thing that bothered me was once he said, I feel badly. And, and, but then I realized that that's kind of a bad, that's kind of a uh, structure which doesn't make too much sense when you take a predicate adjective and say, you know, I, bad, am. So, so I can uh, forgive him for that. But um, you, you are the first person I've ever heard say, suggest, and I'll have to think about this a little bit, to suggest that, that Trump had a better command of spoken English than, say, Barack Obama. Um, yes, I, I, what, 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 what he's, yes, because I think that Mr. Obama thought that he was um, maybe inclus- including terms that came from errors of slavery or, or Southern problems or racial problems. So he would speak the way people speak um, because of that. Well, but, give me, give me an example. Give me an example of that. Like I, I just, I can never, other than, other, other than situations where he was obviously code switching, uh, setting aside those moments. Uh, he would start sentences with, with me instead of I, me and so-and-so did something. He, you you will find that if you go back, that's the way he was. Sometimes when he wanted to speak that way, he spoke that way. And Mr. Bush sounded as though he had had that his education from elementary school on had been from people who, from Mexico with whom he had been, um, who were his friends on his ranch. Uh, I mean, uh, Let's not blame Mexico for the way that George W. Bush spoke. I don't understand that comment either. Okay. Uh, and I'm a little and, uncomfortable and, and, with it, I might add. I mean, look, you know, George yeah, right, George right. W. Bush had access to the finest education in America. Uh, you know, I mean, where do you go? Andover first and then Yale? Uh, if he can't talk well, it's not because he's talking to Mexican farmhands on his ranch or something like that. It's because he didn't pay any attention in school uh, and he just didn't really have that particular gift um, so that he tended to to say things like the only question is uh, is is our children learning uh, those kinds of kind of kinds of bushisms but uh, I don't want us blaming I mean Mexican immigrants take so so this is, you are the first person ever to blame Mexican immigrants for the way that George W Bush talks and you are the first person to suggest at least in my own experience that Donald Trump had a better command of spoken English. Than than did Barack Obama. Um, I, I think if you go back and and look at uh, Trump's uh, attempts to speak off the cuff and, and informally, you'll see this kind of word salad that melts down into run-on sentences and unparsable phrasings and stuff like that. So, but you know, we all bring our politics to our analysis of grammar too, probably. All right, onward, onward, onward. Uh, let's go right down the list here. We'll go to John in. Avon. Hi, John. You're on the air. 
Hi, Colin. I um, think that uh, only uh, Trump alone can fix the problem because he's a very stable genius. Um, so, uh, <laughs> with grammar, you know. But um, I, um, I was uh, calling, referring about the um, last uh, four callers before uh, about, uh, you know, the general topic of grumpiness and let's <laughs> putting it mildly. Um, and I, you know, I blame social media and uh, Facebook in particular. Um, uh, Instagram, all the you know the large corporations that have aren't regulated that are in social media and data gathering, creating these algorithms, selling uh, to third parties, and then you know we're we're spoiled here in this country for for uh, the most part, uh, and we're in a hurry. It's like the you said the tantrum, instant gratification. We want um, to get our news or, or or information quickly, and we don't look at those uh, we don't understand, thanks to the corporations and the lawyers, you know, the EULA and user agreements being so convoluted. Um, and uh, these algorithms creep in and they change us. And uh, we don't know what's happening. Um, we spend, I think they just said five hours on our phones each day. And um, I blame, you know, the, the rise of the divisiveness on that, um, the COVID misinformation, it costs lives. So there's a product liability question. I think they need to be regulated at the least or broken up um, and split off somehow. Um, I don't know the real solution, but um, it's uh, affecting the kids and um, in a bad way too, you know, uh, self-image and all these things. So there's product liability. Where's the lawyers? Get the lawyers involved. Let's slap some bumper stickers on cars to uh, voice our opinions and and get get our politicians aware that this is really probably at the root of it because it's weaponized it and accelerated it, and now we're seeing it in our politics, and that's a threat to our democracy now. So, probably. Well, first of all, interesting ideas there, John. And, I mean, I would just say that it's almost impossible, if I'm understanding what you're suggesting, to apply product liability law and product liability thinking to speech, particularly speech in a country like this where speech is freed from as many regulations as it can possibly be freed from. Um, uh, It's an interesting idea. But but no, I think ultimately we have to create the culture we want to live in. Uh, By the way, he mentioned bumper stickers. We are going to do sometime in the next two or three months, I think, a show about bumper stickers. At least that's sort of out there as an idea and I like it. Um, Let me just quickly say, I I just feel like I should you know, I mean, Mary kind of caught me by – no, what was her name? Lee kind of caught me by surprise. I, I do want to share this, okay, just so, the, so this doesn't stand. <laughs> um, this is Donald Trump during the campaign in 2015 at a campaign rally in South Carolina. What he's trying to say here is basically the Iran deal is bad for the United States. Here's what he says. Look, having nuclear, my uncle was a great professor and scientist and engineer, Dr. John Trump at MIT. Good genes, very good genes. Okay, very smart. The Wharton School of Finance, very good, very smart. You know, if you're a conservative Republican, if I were a liberal, if like, okay, if I ran as a liberal Democrat, they would say I'm one of the smartest people anywhere in the world. It's true. But when you're a conservative Republican, they try, oh, do they do a number? That's why I always always start off, went to Wharton, was a good student, went there, went there, did this, built a fortune. 
you know, I don't have to give my like credentials all the time because we're a little disadvantaged, but you look at the nuclear deal, the thing that really bothers me, it would have been so easy. And it's not as important as these lives are. Nuclear is powerful. My uncle explained that to me many, many years ago. The power and that was 35 years ago. He would explain the power of what's going to happen, and he was right. Who would have thought... But when you look at what's going on with the four prisoners, now it used to be three, now it's four, but when it was three and even now, I would have said it's all the messenger, fellas, and it's fellas because, you know, they don't. They haven't figured out that the women are smarter right now than the men. So, you know, it's going to take them about another 150 years, but the Persians are great negotiators. The Iranians are great negotiators, So, and they, they just killed— they just killed us. Now, don't you dare call me up and tell me that Donald Trump speaks better standard English than Barack Obama, <laughs> because that's not even that unusual. That's that kind of unparsable, rambling monologue by by Paza, no, by Lucky uh, in Waiting for Godot that that we became so accustomed to during the four years of the Trump presidency and the two years of campaigning that preceded it. All right. We have to take a break right here. We've got a lot of people. We're going to uh, see now I'm grumpy. I'm grumpy. Lee made me grumpy. Uh, all right. We're going to take a break. We'll take your calls when we get back. An itinerant little virus from the sinus of a shriner that got picked up off the podium and coughed across the diner. Tumbled past the patty melts and pie and kosher dills and got sucked up by the fan that exhausts above the grill and that's how. That's exactly how I caught my cold. It wasn't fate. Hi, we're back. I want to thank Cat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is up here screening calls, uh, and uh, the calls are coming in to 888-720-9677. We get kind of a full board of calls, though, so I, I won't push that number. I do, I do want to quickly say, okay, this is all happening. If you're listening to us live, this is all happening at 1 o'clock on Thursday. Um, and and uh, so I wanted to tell you what else is happening on Friday. Uh, the nose uh, we're, we're going to this is I think we haven't done too much of this kind of thing. But uh, so on the nose this week, Sam Hadelman uh, and Rebecca Castellani and I are going to talk about um, the the third season of Succession. But maybe more interestingly and excitingly. Uh, the ABBA, the pop group ABBA, is dropping its first new album in 40 years. They went 40 years without putting out an album. It's going to be dropping into the digisphere sometime in the middle of the night or the early morning uh, tomorrow. So we're going to listen to it as fast as we can uh, and discuss it. Uh, on Monday, we, we've got a show coming up uh, kind of now uh, pegged to that inf infamous uh, dorm that you've been hearing about for the last four or five days. But it's sort of about architecture. Well, we're calling it architecture versus humans. Like how, how why is so much architecture almost uh, antipathetic towards uh, human beings? Uh, we've been working now for a few uh, days on a show about rebranding. It's going to run sometime this next week. We're in the middle of sort of a rebranding process with this show. Uh, but we also want to talk about rebranding, uh, as was the case, for example, with uh, Facebook and its brand new name. Uh, later in the week, we'll also be talking about – we'll do some reminiscing about two uh, great old-style 
rock and roll clubs, uh, Toad's Place, uh, which is still with us, and Shabu, which is not. Uh, and then we'll do another notes. Anyway, that's stuff that's coming up here. Let's go to the phones here. Uh, we will go to – oh, actually, I want to talk about this because I, I only became aware of this, I suppose, yesterday. But here's Tom and Milford. Hi, you're on the air. Purple, it said Frank. Okay. That's why I'm asking where Frank was. Where, where is Frank? Does anybody know where Frank is? <laughs> My apologies there. I'm, I'm at work. Okay. Um, I wanted to share an anecdote that was I found both funny and scary from yesterday. Yesterday morning, I was at a uh, uh, fast food, local fast food uh, chain here, and I was in the drive, at the drive-up window. And as I'm paying for my meal, uh, the kid tells me, he, he asks me how I am. I say, I'm doing great. How about you? He says, I'm so happy. I was like, really? Why? He says, because at the end of the day, Joe Biden is not going to be president anymore. And he told me this with a straight face, and he was just ecstatic about it. And I found that, I found that kind of, as I say, funny and scary, because it's basically, you know, he's, he's a, young, a young black kid in Connecticut who's clearly bought into the whole conspiracy theory thing, right? Right. Was he now, doing the whole... I'm going to try to... Was he doing the whole JFK right. Jr. thing? The, the JFK Jr. was going to show up in Washington? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, it was like, yes, it's going you know, to be Trump and JFK Jr. are going to run the country. Right. So, I mean, just for people who don't know... Right. Let th- me know how that works for you. Yeah, this, this was a belief that was promulgated by and embraced by a splinter movement within QAnon, a, a movement which quote-unquote, mainstream QAnon has kind of disavowed. Think about how crazy you have to be when the bulk of QAnon thinks you're too crazy, your views are too outlandish. But the whole idea was that JFK Jr. and maybe JFK were going to show up in Washington. It was yesterday, right? Yeah. And and, and do God knows what. Uh, usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. Who knows? Uh, but uh, the idea that that, I mean, it was it was widespread enough so that the guy at your drive through window thought so, widespread enough so that a certain number of people to actually show up in Washington to witness this event. Uh, so, yes, I mean, we're, that's a kind of new level of crazy, maybe. Although really craziness has just been around forever. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know who else was supposed to show up there yesterday in Washington? That wasn't just JFK. It was also Frank. It was understood that Frank would be there yesterday, and that may be why you can't find Frank now. Uh, I mean, I don't want to feed you know anybody's fear or anything like that, but where the hell is Frank? Uh, all right. So let's go back to the phones here. Here's Nancy in Northford. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Colin. Okay, so um, I feel like I'm the only one who's worried about our democracy being overturned. I, I, see, I saw Trump's strongman tactics um, that were used by Hitler and Mussolini to overthrow stable democracies and other, other strongmen to overthrow stable democracies. Like, the first thing that you say if you're a strongman and you want to overthrow the democracy is you say the press is the enemy of the people. And... I've read, I haven't read Mein Kampf, but I've read that in Mein Kampf, it, it says, this is part of the playbook, it says that if you tell the biggest lie you can and repeat it as often as you can, people will believe it. And I feel like there's this mass hypnosis of Republicans to believe the big lie when it was lifelong Republicans who certified the vote 
in the red states. What about those lifelong Republicans? I, I'm just worried about our democracy. I hope that Congress will, will put some laws into effect that will make um, some of the things we thought were norms, um, maybe, Ill- you know, into laws. I, I just feel like, you know, Trump had a gigantic Republican rally on the White House lawn, the People's House. I mean, there should be a law against that. I just, I feel I'm afraid for our democracy. And I think that I agree with you about algorithms, putting people into their own silos about their beliefs. And I also think that having news on 24 hours a day is a mistake. All right. So there's two theories about what happened on Tuesday. And um, uh, there's a prevailing theory, we might call it the conventional wisdom about what happened on Tuesday, which was that it was, if not an emphatic rejection of Trump, an indication that success may be achieved more easily by steering a little bit away from Trump. And so uh, Youngkin in, in Virginia, you have him both kind of nodding towards Trump, but also taking less extreme positions. It, it's hard to look around at yesterday, uh, Tuesday's results and so, sort of say, well, that's the Trump thing, you know, and not only that, but uh, it turns out that when Republicans win a lot of elections, they're not as suspicious of election <laughs> results anymore. But I understand your fear, and, and I think it's a legitimate fear. We we have had a situation where uh, a president, and the more that comes out, the stuff that's in the Costa and Woodward book, Apparel and stuff like that, the stuff that keeps coming out, it's just clear. This was more elaborate more thought through, more intentional in its determination to disrupt uh, the results of an election, to uh, ignore all court, all those court verdicts that didn't go their way, uh, to do what they could to substitute their own desire for the uh, for the election results. You should be scared. Every everybody who cares about democracy should be scared about that. But but the question is: Are we continuing down that road, or? Are we actually seeking kind of a reversion to the mean? I think it would be hard to have a country that functioned that way for any length of time. I think it would be exhausting, too, the amount of vigilance that each side would have to generate and engage in you know, would be exhausting. So I think there's a substantial part of the electorate, we don't know how much, how big a part, that, that seeks a reversion to the mean. Like, you know, let's have normal operations you know, we can sort of be excitable and, and jerky at times, but but by and large, let's have the democracy that we know and recognize. Uh, but how persistent that feeling is, how pervasive that feeling is, is something that we don't know yet. I mean, I kind of hope it's a lot of people. All right. Checking in from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, is Dave. Hi, Hi, Dave. Hi, Colin. How are you? I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening a few months. I'm a native of Orange, Connecticut, and planning to move back in the somewhere in the near future here. But, um, you know, it's always a pleasure to hear. And I'm just, I know your time's short on the on the, the show today. I am jumping on the topic of media, you know, spreading these grammatical bad things. You know, for instance, the, the idea that Rachel Maddow drove home for me last night when she said there are a number of factors at play in this, you know, whatever she was talking about. And it's like, no, Rachel, in play 
At play is kids running around with a kite. In play means you have all these issues affecting something. And you know, these, these things always just, you know, you can see the arc of these when people start saying it, and then it reaches the top of the, the people you'd expect better from in the media. And man, does that make me grind my teeth. Right. I mean, some of it is when you're speaking without notes, you're speaking extemporaneously. You're going to have some slips here and there. I am living proof of that. Uh, but yes, I also realize, I mean, once again, there are two views of this. There's the prescriptive and the descriptive view of speech, grammar, usage, all that stuff. You know, do do we make rules and follow them or do we create rules that reflect what we see happening uh, in the world of language and the way that it's, the uses are changing. I, I, being old and grumpy, feel like we lose a little bit every time we concede a point when we give up on something. If we decide there's no real meaningful distinction between in play and at play, uh, something gets lost in that process, something that you know can't be replaced by anything else as useful. But it's it's a battle that I think we lose over and over again. So maybe we should just get used to that. But it's good to hear from you, and it's good to be reminded that there's blue Connecticut, there's red Connecticut, there's purple Connecticut, but people tend to forget there's also orange Connecticut. Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. All right, I got time for one more call, don't I? Um, all right, here's Lily. Lily, you're going to have to make it fast. You've got about sixty seconds. Okay, real fast. Um, I'm driving to work anyway. Okay. So I just wanted to say on what was said before about Trump speaking better English than Obama. That's clearly ridiculous. I mean, Trump will forever be the kid who didn't read the book who's talking about it in class like he's read it. You know, the question is, why was he able to get away with that? What does that say about our country? Obviously, it's partially the media when older people believe things that are ridiculous, like these conspiracies of QAnon. Younger people, it's a massive failure of public education. My question to you is, how do we fix that? How do we address it? Well, it's the million-dollar question, and fortunately, I'm out of time, so I don't have to reveal my complete lack of an answer to that question. But but I think we fix, I think we fix it by concentrating more on communities and having communities that function more collaboratively. Now, I think right now the functioning of our communities is at a real low. If you look what's happening, look at what's happening to boards of education, for example, uh, in in towns. Uh, it, it's worrisome. Uh, there's a there's a small but very vocal contingent that's disruptive, uh, and that really objects not to mask mandates or vaccine requirements. They object to rules. They don't want there to be any rules that they have to follow, uh, and that's a problem. And I'm not exactly sure how we're going to fix it, but it's going to it's going to take a big effort. All right, we have to go. Thanks to everybody who listened. Thanks to Cat. Thanks to Mr. McPants. So stay with us in the days to come. We do have some very interesting things to talk to you about. has been disconnected.